The landscape of North America's networks is rapidly evolving. New technologies like 5G carry a lot of promise to redefine the way we do business, learn, and connect with one another. But we're not there just yet. From the budget to build, software to secure, and Spectrum to support all use cases regardless of locale, a lot needs to happen before everyone can tap into its fullest potential. Tune in to Nokia today, where we discuss how policymakers, enterprises, and industry leaders are working together to bring today's network capabilities to scale for the future. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Nokia Today. I'm your host, Tyler Kern. Thanks so much for joining us for this two-part episode of the podcast. We are thrilled to have you along with us. We're going to be discussing renewing the national broadband plan and addressing equity and inclusion with improved availability, affordability, and utilization here on the podcast today. And like I mentioned, this is going to be a two-part podcast. So at the end of this episode, make sure to flip over, check out part two of the podcast because it's going to be a really exciting conversation you don't want to miss. And joining me today to moderate today's conversation is Brian Hendricks of Nokia. So let me turn things over to Brian to introduce the topic on a wider scale and to introduce our guests today. Well, thank you, Tyler. This is Brian Hendricks. I'm the Vice President of Policy and Public Affairs for Nokia in the Americas. And today we'll be joined by two experts in telecommunications policy to talk about the United States' long-standing difficulties with affordability and availability of broadband. It's been a persistent challenge that we have dealt with in each generation of technology here in our country. Ten years ago, the Federal Communications Commission issued a comprehensive national broadband plan. It was a plan ambitious and exhaustive in its analysis and recommendations at more than 360 pages with 17 chapters and 208 specific recommendations. We're now a decade removed from this report. Did we make progress in key areas and what gaps remain? The pandemic has exposed that the gaps in broadband availability and affordability remain at levels that are very surprising, alarming even to many. Both the anecdotal accounts of the lengths to which families are now having to go to access high-speed connectivity and hard data points all illustrate the shortcomings in our past efforts. We've done pretty well in areas like anchor institutions, schools, and libraries, but few contemplated the circumstance we're now in where people simply wouldn't have access to these institutions at a time when the demands on high-speed connections for work and school have increased dramatically. The gap looks larger than we could have possibly imagined. It seems like a key moment in time for us to take a hard look at our strategy. What has changed in the last decade and how does our thinking need to change moving forward? I'm delighted to welcome two renowned experts on the issues to our podcast, each with deep policy experience on broadband connectivity issues and each with personal connections to the long struggle to provide better and more affordable service to millions of Americans. First, I'd like to welcome Blair Levin, Blair's a lawyer and policy authority with extensive experience in communications issues. He was a chief of staff in the 1990s to Federal Communications Chairman Reed Hunt, and later worked as a widely followed analyst for Leg Mason and Stephen Nichols. He chaired the Technology, Innovation, and Government Reform Transition Team for then-President-elect Barack Obama, and was then selected as the executive director overseeing the massive national broadband plan that I just mentioned. We are also joined by Edward Smith known by most of his friends as Smitty. Smitty is a widely respected attorney and policy expert with deep telecommunications experience. 
Earlier in his career, he was a special advisor to the Department of Commerce, the National Telecommunications Information Administration. While there, Smitty launched the agency's state broadband data and development grant program. This was a $350 million program to improve the quality of broadband data nationwide. He later served as the chief of staff to the FCC's incentive auction task force, and then as a legal advisor to the FCC chairman on a range of issues, including 5G, satellite spectrum sharing, small cells, and unmanned aviation systems. Both Blair and Smitty have been deeply involved with a recent effort to re-examine the national broadband plan to refresh it, update it, and even reimagine it. Welcome to you both. Great to be here. Yeah, thank you for having us. Let's uh, talk for a moment about the need for this refresh and a renewal of the national broadband plan. Blair, I'm going to start with you. You've been through the effort before, as I noted. Could you describe a little bit about the process back in 2009, specifically how the process differed than previous analysis and recommendations? It started with Congress and the Recovery Act, which gave the FCC the mandate to do a plan and gave it some funding to do so. Uh, I, I would note that government often doesn't, or very rarely does plans, or certainly in the United States. So it was certainly different than any mandate ever given to the FCC. Um, and we did it in a variety of ways. We had a number of hearings. We took the usual FCC process in which uh, there are closed doors. You meet with one group, then you meet with another, and we kind of flipped it around. We met with all we met with all the groups publicly. We had over forty uh, such meetings, and we had a lot of uh, very detailed questions that we were asking people on paper. We also updated the commission on a monthly basis. And it was more like a consulting project for a board of directors than the usual FCC process. Um, so it was, it was really quite different. And, and the output for, for those who haven't uh, taken a look at it, as I mentioned, is over 300 pages. And it covered a, a wide range of topics and some 200 recommendations. Uh, can you note some of the high points? And if in retrospect, there are any areas you think that didn't get enough attention 10 years ago? Uh, sure. Uh, I think we did an awful lot on spectrum where, for example, we introduced the idea of the uh, incentive broadcast auction, an auction which cleared uh, 84 megahertz of uh, very prime spectrum and raised $10 billion for the government, $10 billion for the broadcast industry. It was, uh, I think, widely received as a, perceived as a great success. We uh, proposed reverse auctions for uh, allocating money for uh, deploying uh, networks to rural areas. The FCC has now done that. Uh, there have been some execution issues, but I think the principle is good. We work with uh, E-rate reform, which the FCC eventually adopted, uh, a program which helps fund schools' connectivity. We proposed what is now called FirstNet, a national public safety network, which I think is uh, been doing extremely well. And there were also some things which really weren't about recommendations, but kind of came out of conversations. Uh, my two favorite, Google Fiber, which I think uh, was not a great business success, but very helpful in uh, accelerating an upgrade of broadband networks in the United States, which thankfully happened because otherwise it'd be very difficult to be doing all the Zooming that we're now Zooming. G Google Fiber arose out of uh, discussions we had with them, though Google deserves the credit for that. And the same Vain uh, Comcast Internet Essentials, uh, a program which has connected more low-income people to in-home broadband than any other program, public or private. That also came out of discussions uh, that we had with them. So sometimes it's just a good idea to 
say, with the relevant stakeholders, here are some big time problems. Uh, what do you think? Are there ways government should act, but are there ways the private sector should act? In terms of things we, we didn't do, I, I would just note that the um, environment was really different than in 2009 and 10 when we were writing this. Uh, there was a general view that broadband was great. We just need more of it. So it was really very much about incentives. Uh, there was not a great sense that we needed uh, heavier regulation. I think doing it now, uh, this isn't what we're doing with the Latimer plan that I know we'll talk about. But there were a number of things on privacy, on cybersecurity, on uh, a number of other issues where I think the government does have a very important role. You can debate what that role is, but there's an important role in making sure that broadband serves the public interest, even if the underlying uh, networks and a lot of the applications are the function of uh, the private sector. Um, so we, we didn't do as much as we maybe should have done back then. There were some other kind of obscure issues like on equipment and interference standards that I wish we had done more. But I think looking back at it, it's, it, it holds up pretty well. Uh, I, I would certainly agree with that. And uh, we're gonna we're gonna ask some questions in a little while about the utilization issues because I think one thing for our listeners, you know, ten years ago we we clearly were were hoping and thinking that that broadband could be a a great enabler uh, of access to to services and things that we thought might become more digitalized and and essential activities of American life. But obviously, uh, you have the advent of five G technology, which promises. Uh, to accelerate that pace. And then we had this pandemic, which uh, made access to broadband truly uh, an immediate essential need for most people. So we'll talk about that um, because I know that this report looks a lot at utilization and how it will transform transform things moving forward. Let me shift to why a reboot at this point in time. Uh, Obviously, there's been a lot of attention on broadband in the news uh, there have been a lot of stories, anecdotal and otherwise, about the people who continue to have uh, lack of access to, to physical connectivity and affordability issues and device issues. Um, so it seems like it's a good time for Reboot. But what, what specifically was, was the National Urban League looking at here um, in, in terms of doing a, a refresh? What was the impetus behind now and the issues that were selected for study? And, and let me start with you, Smitty. Thank you, Brian. Well, you know, I, I think that the why question is uh, several fold. And, um, you know, we've touched on a little bit already. But, you know, for one, technology has changed a lot in 10 years and, and as has how people use it. And 10 years is a long time in tech. So a refresh was due. Um, but the other reason, as you also sort of touched on, is that, you know, we're sitting here at the, what we would say is the confluence of crises. The COVID-19 pandemic, obviously, and how important broadband is today uh, in the midst of the pandemic for all of us and how we live our lives and connect, how we work, how we, um, you know, educate, how we uh, take advantage of healthcare. But then there's other crises that, uh, you know, sort of are are prominent today, the the class stratified economic crisis uh, that the pandemic helped precipitate, Um, you know, social unrest and movements sparked by the murder of George Floyd. Uh, the political unrest surrounding the 2020 election. You know, these were and still are huge problems that have at their core fundamental questions regarding how equitable and inclusive our society is and how do we eliminate the inequities to create a better country for all Americans. Uh, and we believe that technology and telecommunications not only should be, but must be a major part of that solution. Um, and so that, that 
really brings us to the National Urban League. Uh, you know, the Urban League is a civil rights organization. It's got a rich history, 111 years. Uh, and, and they've focused on advancing economic empowerment and equality and social justice. You know, if you look at their mission statement, you know, they, they emphasize that their goal is to help African-Americans, but not just African-Americans, other underserved communities achieve social parity, economic self-reliance, power, civil rights. They have focuses on education and job training and workforce development and health. And so for any organization with these goals, closing the digital divide and driving digital equity and inclusion has to be a top priority. And so that's particularly true today. Uh, when being disconnected has such a devastating impact on underserved communities uh, with respect to all of those goals. And so that's why I think, you know, this was the perfect marriage between a, a point in time when we really needed to focus on doing this reboot and also the, you know, the, the, the times called for it and called uh, to an organization like the National Urban League to get engaged. In, in some respects, it's probably unfair to call this a refresh of the national broadband plan. You're looking at issues that go way deeper um, than that fundamentally. And we're also taking a look at this particular moment in time where uh, the, the need for access, the work from home, the digital learning, uh, the at-home learning, all of these things are stress testing, not only the networks we've built, uh, illuminating the places we don't have them, but also uh, shining a light on some of the the programs that we've had. And so so one question is, before we go into specific details here, was the, was the purpose to also take a look at some of the policy frameworks that we had in place and reimagine those uh, to see if we can't improve the yield we've gotten off of, off of our efforts? Yeah, I think that's, that's right. And I, I would simply say that uh, one of the things that COVID did was that it created a lot of political capital that frankly wasn't around in 2009 and 10 for doing that, you, whether you call it a refresh or reboot or a, a new initiative that like all policy initiatives builds on the lessons of the past. You know, but for example, and I, I should have mentioned this and thinking of the things that didn't work as well as we thought, uh, we called for some changes in Lifeline, but I think we fell short of what was necessary. And uh, one of the big lifeline is the program that helps connect low-income people. It's been around since the Reagan administration. But in a world of broadband, uh, we really need to restructure it because it's critically important for education, for healthcare, for workforce development, that affordability is not a barrier to getting broadband in the home. So that that's certainly one thing. But there were so many other things. It was one of the things that was interesting to those of us who worked on the plan was that when COVID hit, the federal government suddenly accepted a bunch of proposals that we had to make uh, telehealth across state lines more viable. And indeed, you saw this massive increase in the use of telehealth. I think it's Medicare in February of 2020, less than 1% of visits with healthcare professionals was done online in April, uh, for obvious reasons, about 40% were. And I don't think we're going backwards in that. But that makes getting everyone online even more important. If we have a system where 50 or 60% of the visits to healthcare and the monitoring and the checking and the triage is done online, but you still have 20 to 30% of Americans who can't do that, that's a two-track healthcare system that's not going to be good for anybody. So the urgency 
and 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 the damage done by not having everybody online is significantly greater today than it was ten years ago. Excellent. So I want to pick up that theme right there and talk about the, the two questions that that tend to dominate the discussion. Uh, when we talk about broadband, and that's availability and affordability. And then I, we're going to leave some time to talk about one of the more interesting dimensions of the findings, uh, which is the utilization gap. But, you know, Blair, Smitty, both tell us a little bit more about the high-level findings in the Latimer report on availability and affordability. You, you make a good point that for a very long time, the debate has been uh, largely driven by a focus on availability and affordability. And those are very, very key elements that we spend a good deal of the uh, Latimer plan uh, examining, but, um, but but we examine it through a, a lens that looks at things in terms of uh, utilization, and, and, and by utilization, we mean uh, how we use these networks to dis- del- deliver essential services, uh, you know, services like workforce development, healthcare, and education. But 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 those those two points um, are things that warrant you know some examination. So I'll talk a little bit about that. Starting with availability, the FCC each year puts out a broadband deployment report. You know, the most recent broadband deployment report, you know, found that as of the end of 2019, about 14.4 million Americans uh, lacked any option for subscribing to broadband using a fixed terrestrial service uh, with 25 three speeds, 25 megabits per second down, three megabits per second up. Now, that, that, that of course, you know, doesn't count mobile wireless connections. It doesn't count satellite. And, and there are compelling reasons uh, to consider both, especially as we see those technologies beginning to offer comparable service to fixed terrestrial counterparts. But uh, for the purposes of, of what you know, we're looking at, we, we stick with the FCC's definition. And, and our concern when we talk about the digital divide is largely a concern that's focused on in-home broadband because of the differences uh, in use cases between in-home and mobile. Even looking at with the FCC's definition, there's a lot of fair criticism that the FCC's methodology uh, may overcount uh, served households and that uh, actual availability um, is, is indeed uh, overstated. And so uh, there have been some independent uh, assessments that actually have the number being much larger, uh, you know, some uh, with numbers as large as 42 million. So h- however you measure it, the, the numbers are, are very big and they need to be very small. The, the reason that there is an availability gap is, is really uh, comes down to the fact that there's still areas of the country for which the business economics do not support uh, broadband deployment uh, using private capital alone. And so uh, that, that, that's basically there's insufficient profit incentive uh, in the absence of some sort of subsidy. And, uh, and these are usually in very, very rural areas. And, and so the solution has been, uh, you know, for over the last 20 years is universal service, high cost funding. Um, and we've put a lot of money into that, uh, billions and billions of dollars. But uh, you know what we talk about in the plan when we think about how do we close that gap, and, is a, and this is a, a question that's received a, a lot of attention for a long time. Um, you know, we we start looking at some things a little differently, and, and one of the things that we focus on is uh, you know the definition of broadband. Um, you know, before you can decide and before you can figure out a way to close the gap, you have to understand where broadband is available. But, but that's not just a mapping question. It's a definitions question. And it's not binary. So it, it depends on a lot of different elements and, 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 and it changes with time. Uh, so where broadband is, quote unquote, available um, under a 10 megabits 
you know, downstream one megabit upstream uh, per second upstream definition uh, is uh, one thing. And, and indeed, you know, uh, it, it's, a, it's a totally different thing once you shift that definition to 25.3 and a different one if you shift that definition to 110. And, um, and, and as you move that, the percentage of the population that actually has broadband by your measure is going to change. It's not static. And so as the definition is adjusted for higher speeds, we're going to see gap, the gap widen. And in fact, uh, one thing that we propose here is that higher speeds, among other things, may be exactly what we need um, as we look at the increased use of broadband uh, caused by COVID and how we're using it. Uh, you know, we have to look and see whether or not the current FCC definition of 25.3 is really sufficient, given how much we're dedicating, uh, you know, on uh, how much we depend to uh, depend on, on on our connectivity for for work, for education, for for our entertainment, and shopping, and all of our engagement, and so uh, we suggest in the plan that we you know, look not only at speed but also consider other elements, uh, but that indeed it needs uh, to be reassessed, and that the FCC needs to take a, a, another look. Uh, another important thing that we sort of look at in the availability prong is, is to sort of ask questions about you know, the level at which uh, we subsidize our networks. And uh, th there's a strong justification for setting the minimum performance standards for the networks that we're gonna subsidize at a higher level than whatever we adopt as the definition of broadband. And, and the reason for that is that so that we're not subsidizing networks that are quickly rendered obsolete uh, as consumer data demands and performance needs increase. Um, but that creates difficult trade-offs that we can talk about a little bit later uh, between actually achieving universal broadband and then the quality of the broadband uh, that uh, we're providing or that we're subsidizing. And in a universe of limited funds, that, that, that trade-off has to be something that we, we weigh uh, and weigh carefully uh, and make sure that these are deliberate policy choices. Uh, you know, when we think about sort of how, you know, Blair mentioned this and talked about a little bit about how we, you know, end up funding uh, broadband deployment and, and and the national broadband plans proposal uh, for using reverse auctions. Uh, you know, we continue to sort of advise that reverse auctions are a useful tool for funding broadband deployment. And but but you know, we recommend a series of reverse auctions that allow us to learn from uh, the you know past auctions and see how technology is de developing uh, so that it, we can then change how we're structuring things and how we're weighting things for future deployments. Uh, as we see certain technologies like satellite and mobile improve, we may see them become increasingly viable solutions for solving the availability gap. And, but I think probably you know, the, the most critical thing uh, here is, is going to be the question of how do we pay for all of this? And uh, we'll, we'll dig into this a little bit more too, but you know, the, the, what's clear is that the current uh, structure of paying for universal service is not sustainable, uh, and so you know that the the, the structure based on uh, you know the contribution factor as it is uh, you know drawing from a pool that is uh, interstate and international only um, is 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 not going to be able to sustain a broad expansion of the uh, of, of the service uh, provided and the number of people relying on it uh, and so uh, we we have some ideas as to you know how to do that I, I've, I've gone for a bit on availability I haven't even touched on affordability yet but if you want you can. <laughs> well I, how about this because uh, I do I do want to ask one one follow-up and then we'll, we'll talk very specifically about affordability but it, 
So you've got a couple of things that I think are very interesting. Well, many things that are interesting in the report itself, but a couple of recommendations that I think are uh, are commendable because they're not easy political choices that have to be made. And I would highlight too, in particular, you, Smith, you just mentioned the contribution factor. Uh, I think it's a it's a poorly kept secret that uh, you know we need a way to to provide financing for broadband that doesn't create uh, the kinds of, of political tensions that you know line items on people's phone bills tend to. But secondly, you talk about the eligible telecommunications carrier recommendation and, and what those basically, tell me if this is a fair characterization. You're, you're advising policymakers, don't get locked into all of our frameworks of the past. It should be about looking at, at, at all kinds of new approaches, new business partnerships, new models, you know, to, to, to try and do this and, and improve our our performance and and the cost at which we are deploying these things. So fair characterization that you also say are are signaling. Don't be afraid to try new things. Yes, um, I would say yes. Um, with with perhaps a little bit of a caveat, um, be judicious about how you do try those new things. And so what I mean by that is, for example, uh, our proposal for a series of reverse auctions. You know, we we ask that you know it be done in that way so as to allow uh, lessons to be learned before you decide to fund a uh, you know or to invest a, a substantial amount of funding into a new technology that hasn't been tested to provide the service that you're seeking to provide for the areas that are unserved. But yes, uh, you know, to your point and, and, and to the ETC uh, recommendation, yeah, it, it, you know, the, the, what we're saying is don't unnecessarily restrict your potential for supply of these services. And so uh, currently, uh, you know, by re- restricting the availability to participate in some of these and to receive some of this funding to uh, eligible to telecommunications carriers, ETCs, uh, you're taking off of the board a potential, potentially significantly large uh, provider of supply. Uh, and by doing so are artificially uh, you know, impeding your ability to offer the service. So yeah, no, I think that the the your your point is well made, which is keep keep an open mind, keep an open view of these things. We we made sure that this was a report that is uh, technologically neutral. Uh, you know, we, we did not uh, lean hard on any particular way of providing telecommunication services. We simply focus on the fact that it needs to be provided and that we need to be judicious about how we set the standards for what those are. Excellent. So I, I want to return real quick, just ask you one question about the affordability, because I really do want to talk about the utilization issue uh, a lot, Smitty. But, uh, you know, we have always talked about uh, these issues in terms of are the networks available and how much does a service cost? Uh, they're still highly relevant questions, it seems to me, but there are other considerations too, right? The the networks, as you mentioned, have to have sufficient capability and they have to evolve as the demand increases. And affordability isn't just about the service, but for the things that you need, like devices to fully leverage the broadband benefits. So are there recommendations in the Latimer report on these topics? Definitely, the report goes well beyond just uh, networks and what do they cost. And and yeah, thank you for pointing out sort of or highlighting the fact that it, 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 we need to look at um, you know sort of networks not just for today but for the future. Um, but we state explicitly, uh, you know, that it's critical that both broadband availability and devices with which to access the internet are, are basic, the you know prerequisites to achieving digital equity and inclusion. And we call for directly for funding both service and devices, which is one of the unfortunate limitations of uh, you know current lifeline funding. We we also sort of 
point to things like uh, you know having the Office of Digital Equity uh, work, work to in, encourage hardware, device, equipment manufacturers, and you know to um, make available uh, more low-cost uh, laptops and computers and, uh, and and things of that nature. Because you know right now one of the barriers uh, to closing the availability ability gap is uh, a relative dearth of low-cost computers. And uh, you know there are a lot of factors that may be driving that. But uh, th- at the end of the day. Uh, if if you don't have the devices on which people can you know, can can access the internet, then having service alone won't really do it for you. Another thing that I think is sort of worth noting, you know, our, our proposals go in a lot of different directions and touch on a lot of different really interesting things. But one one thing is is not just looking at it from the perspective of the device question when we think about connectivity, but but also looking at it from a web architecture perspective. Our recommendations. Uh, you know, do encourage funding for devices, but they also encourage, um, you know, that critical online resources need to be better accessible for mobile devices uh, and users of mobile devices. You know, I I think there was a statistic that, uh, you know, uh, at the beginning of the uh, pandemic, uh, as people were searching for unemployment benefits, about 86% of state unemployment websites uh, failed tests for mobile friendliness. And, and, And what we have here is a situation where the people who uh, are frequently most dependent on these government services and these government resources um, are the ones who are least equipped uh, to actually be able to access them because you know they they are high, highly you know uh, f- very frequently dependent on mobile uh, as a way to access it and the website themselves are not mobile friendly so you know th- these are some of the things that we examine. Excellent. Hey, everyone, that's going to do it for part one of our conversation with Brian Blair and Smitty here on Nokia Today. But don't worry, there is a part two available as well. So make sure to click over to the second part of our conversation on renewing the national broadband plan. And make sure you go subscribe to Nokia Today on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Stay up to date with the latest from Nokia by subscribing to the podcast today. We'll see you over on the other side here on part two of our conversation with Brian Blair and Smitty here on Nokia Today. Thank you.